Well, welcome to a unprecedented 90-minute interview with Mark Garino, who is the author of, I'll say the title again, Country and, West, Country and Midwestern, Chicago and the History of Country Music and the Folk Revival. It's got a foreword by Robbie Folks. It is some 500 or so pages long, and I will tell you right now that I reread this over the weekend. Uh... I have read it once before, and I thought, well, I'll just brush up on a few things here. I, I guess that's credit to you, huh, Mark, you think? <laughs> well, um, I, you know, people are digging into it now, and no one has read it twice. So you're, you're you know, so, <laughs> I'm up there. Yeah, I'm yeah, you're the marathon winner here, you know. I'm unique. Yeah. This book is 10 years in the making, and since you're going to be here for a long time, I want to go back to who you are. You were born and raised in Oak Park? I was, yeah. Yeah. What did your parents do? So my dad, um, they were both more or less freelancers in a way. They loved the freelance life before it was cool. Today, everyone seems like they're freelance. My mom was a freelance journalist. So like you're gen- and, genetically predisposed yeah, to right. the life that's, you lead. Yeah. Exactly. I'd wake up to the sound of a typewriter downstairs banging away. Dad, don't and, you have an office to go <laughs> yeah, to? Yeah. That's right. And my my dad is a, a mechanical engineer <laughs> and had an office in Oak Park and downtown Oak Park as well. And so... Um, they, uh, you know, that that drive to produce was there, and I always tell people with my with my mom in the seventies and the eighties, um, our kitchen table was her desk, oh, and uh, and so uh, when I would come home for lunch, and she would take the giant very heavy steel typewriter off the thing and put down our bologna sandwiches and eat those and Who did she get, write get for? us out. Everybody. She wrote for the Tribune. She wrote for Pioneer Press, uh, the Sun Times. Uh, really, everyone, uh, any, anyone who uh, you know could give her a byline, she wrote for. So, you, when yeah. you decided after we would go to Oak Park River Forest, I did. I did. After high school, and I then did go to college. You know, it wasn't a real decision. I hate to say that. You know, I was always into writing, and I was always into creative writing. So I wrote plays, and and I still write plays to these this yeah, day. Yeah, write a number. Of yeah, them. yeah, yeah. And so when I, I went to Loyola, and there I I knew I wanted to write, and so I joined the school paper. Um, and I had a column, so they gave me the column the first week what of my uh, at the Phoenix. What sort of column? It was a satire column, right. and I really, really enjoyed that. And by my junior year, I became the editor in chief of the paper. And I hate talking about my you know college paper days as some glory thing, but I have to say that was really an influential. I felt that was influential because at Loyola at the time there wasn't a journalism degree. I never took a journalism class in my life. There was no faculty member over looking over us. We had what complete free. What were you majoring in? English. Okay. And so um, we had complete freedom to do whatever we wanted in this little basement office uh, up in Rogers Park. And uh, and it was like I was like a kid in the candy store. I could just kind of go out. And I was kind of like, like the type of stuff that you covered in your career. I was always interested in people. Mm-hmm. And being in Rogers Park, which I still think to me is one of the most interesting, if not the no most question. interesting – neighborhood in chicago i would go out on the streets in rogers park and just go find stories um and uh, that really to me that was the foundation of everything that came next because i realized at an early age even for playwriting for anything journalism gave you 
a, a, it gave you a magic key to basically knock on a stranger's door and get them to talk to you yeah. and not talk to you yeah. about just like the weather. It talked to you about like gritty stuff in life, what sure. was moving them. And so I, 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 you know, I was like, this is great, you know, and I was also doing that in Chicago. Oh, this, this is great. How can I make money? This? <laughs> yeah. Didn't really think about that. Yeah, that's a, who does it in college? Who does yeah. it in college? And then you went to Bennington, which I find a, a I interesting did. choice. I did. And that was a number of years ago. So a couple decades had passed. And um, I always wanted to have an MFA. And that was a way to do it without having to go away to college. It was a remote program, except I got to go to Vermont twice a year. Nothing wrong which with I that. Which I loved. Yeah, you know, I got to say, with... after I graduated, I was like, I can't come back here. <laughs> um, and uh, and so that was really great because it kind of connected me to a community of writers. And um, what kind of what kind of music was in your house as a young man, so, as a boy? Yeah. So my parents were really uh, the generation of the folk revival, and mm-hmm. so they had Kingston Trio, Weavers. Um, they also had uh, musicals. You know, that's that was the high, that was the really the golden age of Broadway musical uh, soundtracks, recordings. Sure. Um, and so we had all of that as well. And so I knew of Pete Seeger as a children's um, uh, oh, uh, performer. That's a great introduction he put out, to he put out, sure. Yeah, because he put out a great children's record, and we had that growing up. And so I had all that stuff growing up. Um, but it really wasn't until like I got, you know, obviously when I was in high school, I got into... Um, just stuff that high school kids were listening to in the eighties. And, um, but it wasn't until I really started, um, interviewing musicians when that started in college, you know, cause I would write about bands and songwriters and, and that I, I got really, um, I really liked, uh, hearing, um, like what, not necessarily technical stuff, but really kind of who they were and why why they were why doing they what they what were they doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are in this book uh, again. It's country and midwestern. Hundreds of stories about interesting people, some of whom I knew, some of whom I adored, uh, some of whom were brand new to me. Uh, that's why we're going to spend uh, until 6.30 talking about this. After this short little break, you're going to hear uh, one of the stars of the book singing one of my favorite songs. We'll be back. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Wynn Strachey, one of the uh, heroes, I think, of uh, Mark Arino's latest and new and first book, Country and Midwestern. This book took you 10 years of intense research, I think, Mark. I will talk later in the show about the writing style, which I think is extraordinary. But you ran into a number of people like Wynn Strachey, mm-hmm. who had been forgotten, who were not written about with any in your research. Uh, you had to dig into old newspaper files and all manner of other sources. What other sources? Uh, well, he left behind a lot of recordings. He and, and you know what I found interesting is that his recordings and he left together. He left also left a, a songbook, this hefty songbook called "Songs of Man," and had one of the great titles. Um, and it was really um, and. Um, you know, in the '90s, there was this really there was there was a real interest in finding uh, curators of American song. Like the Harry Smith anthology was reissued in the '90s, and it was an opportunity for people to look back at songs that were recorded uh, early century. And um, 
And what I found, and so that was all coming out of New York. What I found interesting is that Winstracky was doing the same thing at the same period of time, but people forgot about that stuff. Like the Songs of Man is this hefty, huge. I mean, if you go, you can go find it at a, at a used bookstore. It's this very big volume of songs that he felt mm. told the songs uh, to- told uh, the the story of America and not in some patriotic way flag waving way dark songs songs about the, the inner you know dark psychology of man, of man um and and he has this great and the essay i believe that the quote that comes from my book i think comes from the essay he wrote beforehand so it's this very profound look at forgotten American songs that he compiled and got published, he recorded a great record called Americana, yeah, sure. um, which uh, is a term that's bandied about today. But again, the same thing. I think that one of the th- reasons that people have kind of tended to sort of marginalize him or forget him is that he, his public persona was of uh, kind of a cheery guy on local airwaves. He, had, mm-hmm. he was a children's entertainer. Children's entertainer. Yeah, right, um, right, yeah. Right. And he recorded a lot of uh, records for kids. Um, but he was someone who, um, as uh, my research uncovered, he was under surveillance by the FBI for many decades. His family didn't know that. His family had no idea. I gave them the FBI file after I found it. Um, I just thought that, you know... He came out of the labor movement, um, along with Studs Terkel. Sure. He was in labor theater. Um, he really led, uh, a, a, boy, he left, he led several lifetimes before getting started in the Old Town School, which was really the last victory lap of his life. Yeah. You know, yeah, he yeah. needed that to like feel validated because by that point in time, he had been fired from all of his jobs because the government had whispered in the ear of, um, of his employers here in Chicago that he was a communist and so he couldn't find work and so by the time the late 50s roll around he's performing essentially classical songs for hire if you need to, if you want them for your wedding um, if you want them for your uh, you know event and um, he put together a little program um, and it was the old town school that really kind of brought him back to life and he he was able to see the longevity of that school. I found a really great um, letter that he wrote when he was moving out of Chicago. He wrote to a friend that he said when he saw that young upstart named John Prine was getting some attention and Bonnie Kolak, and he wrote that um, that his vision for that school was actually like it the fruits of that was coming was a a next generation was moving it forward and um so it's it's uh there was a lot of stuff in there to dig dig through but it was spread all over i remember as a kid my childhood friend steve wade saying showing me a banjo and i go what are you doing with that he goes i'm gonna go take lessons at the old town school we know what happened to steve <laughs> Wynn. we'll tell you later we'll take a break mark is going to be here all the way until 6 30 they're knocking at the window because i'm talking to mark Garino and not into a microphone thank you brett thank you krista uh hello mark we're talking we just uh sort of went through the windstrucky uh story here one of the reasons and and mark in his book, uh, Country and Midwestern, makes the case that, a strong case, that one of the reasons that this is the first detailed book about the country and western and folk scene, there have been other little books 
the most comprehensive look is that Chicago's never been big on promoting this. I mean, like, you look at a place like Memphis or, you know, God help us all, New Orleans or Nashville. Why was there seemed to be no civic pride in any of this? Why, why is that? I think it's a couple of reasons. I mean, I th- really, one of the main reasons is that there wasn't really any um there were very few quote-unquote mega stars that came out of chicago so if you're not paying attention in city hall you just don't think that it matters and i think the other thing is i think places like um you know governments tend to look at the arts as the fine arts yeah and they and, and and art organizations that take government money and so um symphony orchestras ballet companies uh theater companies and the so-called low arts uh which is where blues and jazz and country and music folk. comes from yeah. and folk music comes from those are places that come out of bars predominantly yep. and the bars are the creative incubators for every type of music it doesn't matter who you are john prine started in a coffee shop and now you know and and it is like playing the chicago theater and that trajectory is true for any type of music in those genres um and i think that because there's those are small businesses that i don't think that there was really the the approach is very different so they didn't quote-unquote see it you know and there was no collective energy between you know saloon keeper owners are generally a competitive bunch. It's come to my place. Don't right. go to his place. You, there's, a, there's a fascinating statistic in your book where you say that at one point in the mid-60s, I think, of all the storefronts in, in Uptown, 17 to 20% of them were taverns. That's right. That's right, and 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 guess what was in those besides the booze? Yeah, and, right. Um, beside <laughs> beside drunks, yeah. exactly. In the corner was a jukebox filled with country and western hits, or a live band. Yeah, and so there was music teeming out of these places. And I think one of the theme of the a real one of the themes of this book is also over the many decades. Um, the main uh, bars or saloons or what have you that that produced that were those creative incubators, they were eventually harassed by the city of Chicago sure. to close. Sure. The closing of all these main places really it was was from the pressure from. So we have the Quiet Night, you have the College of Complexes, you can go all the way up to Lounge Axe, mm-hmm. uh, rock a rock club yeah. in yeah. in Lincoln Park, Lincoln Park. And, and 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 several others all at some point had to deal with the city that couldn't understand what's the difference between this bar and a bar that just has drunks or you know or a sports bar that it was just it treated them differently and i think it goes back to the fact that there was no classification for a music uh, uh, there's no classification for a storefront bar that has music they just see it as just also country music and a bad rep you know it it wasn't even qualified as country music it was hillbilly music and then that and that um in uptown uh where the predominantly of the kind of people from the upland south moved for many decades they're seeking work after the you know starting in the 30s that area really declined because um slumlords took over because they basically were going to accommodate this new wave this new migration of southerners coming up poor southerners looking for work and so 
They didn't take care of buildings. They took grand apartments and split them up into three or four apartments. There was, um, and so the conditions deteriorated. So if you're someone living downtown Chicago and you look up at what happened to uptown, you know, yeah. look at those people. It was a demonization we of all those people. We used to go dancing people. at the Aragon. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And so it was a demonization of poor people who have, and so therefore you saw it in all the media around there that all the media portrayed these people as violent, um, uh, uneducated, uncultured, and it was kind of a, and, and eventually, urban renewal tried to literally get rid of oh, them, no question, push them out, no question. And so, well, yeah, how was the media? How were the media? You know, when you had four main daily newspapers at the time, how was the media covering that? I mean, you obviously had some real revelations that probably made you sick to your stomach, right? And um, and so, there's a section in there where I talk about. I mean, well, well, the short answer is they treated them really horribly, yeah, and uh, they they there was a. Um, uh, a kind of a cartoon version of, of, of the people that were living there. And, um, I talk about a, uh, a, a columnist at the Chicago Tribune who, um, ran a whole series of columns about she would go visit the honky tonks in Uptown. And what she encountered there was like a jungle, uh, according to her. And, um, and, and what's interesting is that the Tribune, after all those articles, they got all of these letters from people saying how insulted they were and standing up for the people there. It was actually really remarkable that she was forced to go back. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and go back yeah. and really kind of do a, maybe a deeper probe to why are the conditions bad here and what are these people struggling with. And so it was actually kind of a nice little turn turnabout when um, it went from very satire to actually a little bit more harder journalism in a matter of just a couple of weeks. On the folk scene uh, here, it, it always has intrigued me, and I, I, I was reminded in your amazing book that the Gate of Horn is a fascinating place to me in that it was the first folk nightclub, <laughs> yeah, which seems, right. what? what? Right. There's Mr. Kelly's over here, but here's a folk nightclub. And it was, that was a way the owner, the legendary Grossman, wanted to, I suppose, be more acceptable to the mainstream. Is that? So, so Albert Grossman, who most people knew, I knew of him as the notorious manager for Bob Dylan yeah. and many others in the 60s. Um, he cut an amazing, as I reminded oh. in your book, he cut an amazing deal with Dylan. It's like, I'll take 25% of your profits and 50% of your wives or something. He, he yeah. basically established the man, the rock manager formula before, you know, for that era, starting in the early 60s yeah. um, and became very rich because of it. But he, he, he grew up on the west side of Chicago before he moved to New York. That's another person. Just it's another person who's forgotten as a Chicagoan. Completely forgotten as a Chicagoan. Completely. And, he, and and his whole, you know, he was a real Chicago hustler. You know, oh. I, I describe him as like, you know, an alderman for that time or something. You know, he was like he was he was really uh, he was a tough guy. Yeah. And um, uh, so yeah, when I thought of like the first folk nightclub, what does that mean? Because I couldn't really wrap my head around that sure. either. And. Um, but then it made perfect sense because all of these nightclubs were having at that time the heyday of Rush Street and yeah. Mr. Kelly's and and the Blue Note and all these places were um, having comedians and uh, singer jazz singers and uh, and 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 great jazz performers in that realm was the Gate of Horn, which presented folk singers. And what happened was 
Albert Grossman basically put these people in suits. Exactly. Suits and ties. <laughs> suits yeah. and ties. Suits Took and ties. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so, um, and it became um, a place where uh, performers from all around the country would come here and audition because if you were able to play the Gator Horn, you could play several weeks there and make a really good right, money. Because right. it, its equivalent did not exist in F- Greenwich Village. Greenwich Village were, was essentially coffee houses yeah, and exactly. little tiny rooms. This was a place where people, suburbanites would come in, dress in their finest or after work, go there and have cocktails and watch the guy, you know, watch uh, you know Judy Collins on stage perform. Fabulous. I want to read one thing. We're all over the map because this book uh, country and Midwestern covers uh, the waterfront, as we say, in Chicago. It's a hundred years of music. The lakefront. Lake yeah. so lake yeah. <laughs> Mark Greiner covers the lakefront. Here's just one little... Bob Dylan comes to, to Hyde Park in 1960, and Mark writes, In December 1960, more than a month before the first uh, folk festival, a musician named Robert Zimmerman turned up at the New Dorms. Elvin Bishop recalled the impression he made, quote, little chipmunk-faced guy with a flat hat and a pea coat. I said, oh, this poor bastard seems like a nice guy, but is never going to make it. Listen to that voice. His harmonica playing was useless, too. <laughs> Welcome to Chicago, Bob Dylan. We'll be back in a couple minutes. For someone who knew very little about the uh, country music scene in Chicago uh, before or since, uh, I learned everything that I need to know from Marco Reno's uh, amazing book. I, I know I'm being a little hyperbolic, but it really is amazing. Justifiably hyperbolic. It is called Country and Midwestern. The stuff about when we get to the folk music scene, that's where I really just dove in. I knew so many of these people, know some still. Uh what caught, what was the folk boom all about here, Mark? I'm, I'm mostly curious about the 70s. Yeah, the 70s was, what's interesting is that um, it really was, I refer to it as the second folk boom. Exactly. The first one was um, in the 50s, and uh, but rock and roll more or less kind of killed that nat- nationally. Yeah. And by the 70s, you know, everyone knows about the singer-songwriter kind of came to prominence everywhere, including, especially in California. And uh, But here, um, that dominated the scene. And what's amazing is that there were um, music rooms um, throughout the North Side that predominantly had songwriters. Yeah. And it became yeah. a whole songwriter scene. And it became songwriters watching other songwriters and collaborating with other songwriters. And there was this thing where you could go out every night of the week. You could, you could actually perform every night of the week because there were so many clubs in Lincoln Park and Old Town, all the way up through Rogers Park. And not only that, there were clubs for kids, too. There were songwriters, yeah. there were folk folk clubs for young kids, too. So it was this incredible um, surge of activity that, again, Chicago, I found a lot of like travel articles written about Chicago at that time that said, if you're looking for the singer-songwriter, go to Chicago because there were places to play. And, and I think that comes from the fact that, um, you know, the kind of incubation of Chicago from the other coasts, um, it was cheaper to live here. No there was an audience also for it that really wanted it. And so you had people, even like Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, kind but of coming you, you here. You have a great story in here in, in the book 
there are a million great stories in the book, but one special to me is Paul Simon comes in here. He asked Bonnie Kolak, the great Bonnie Kolak, a good friend of mine, to show him around to various clubs. And Bonnie finally says, well, later we'll go to the Earl, and you can I'm performing. You can watch me perform. And Gus Johns, the, the bartender, or bartender slash uh, bodyguard, said you wouldn't let him in. No, it was sold out because Bonnie Kolak sold out the Earl of Old Tom all the time. And so she's like, come on, I'm playing tonight. And so he shows up and he get Paul Simon gets turned away because the 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 the, uh, the door guy didn't recognize who he was. And just like, it's sold out. Sorry, you can't come in. Oh, I know, it's amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. And there were a million of those kind of clubs. Uh you obviously interviewed Bonnie. She's beyond a delight. And what's interesting about Bonnie Kolak is that her records, um, uh, they're actually, um, you know, I, I really didn't know much about her music because I hadn't seen her perform at the Old right, Town School. Right, right. And I knew of maybe her later stuff um, when she was doing, you know, she did a lot of musical theater. And um, I went back to her 70s records and I looked at the, I turned those records over and I looked at who were on those records. She had some of Chicago's greatest jazz musicians playing yeah, on them. Yeah. Her songs are like, um, and I, I, boy, I really wish somebody would discover those records and put, reissue those records because they're all out of print. Yep. Um, but they are really comp, they're, they're, they're up there with the best of the singer songwriter era. And the reason we don't hear them all the time is because they're out of print. And, and I, and I, and I'm, I'm hoping that my book, We'll bring more attention to those records. Someone like Michael Smith, who I think oh, is one, so it was a discovery for me writing this book. Who died, died a couple of years ago? He died a couple of years ago. One of the great songwriters oh, from the city. Amazing, yeah, yeah. just amazing. Yeah, uh, perhaps the greatest. He, he, Robbie Folks, who is uh, an astonishing, astonishing musician, uh, wrote the uh, preface to this uh, great book. Uh, and you say that Robbie. You give him high praise. You say he's the best, perhaps, singer-songwriter since John Prine. Yeah. I, I'll stand by that. And I and I think that um, Robbie, uh, he, he, first of all, he's a great performer, yeah. incredible musician. He's a musician that other musicians look up to. That I can't tell you how many musicians, including Lucinda Williams, Sam Bush, the great bluegrass star, a lot of people in Nashville they are super fans of his um, because he's considered, I mean, he's just an incredible guitarist. He's a very funny performer. Yep. But also what was great about um, being here in Chicago in the 90s when he started was able to watch his career grow. Yeah. And not just grow in popularity, but grow as an artist. Um, his his song, he just became a better songwriter. Well, he's also, he's a great, I don't know if he's got a future in writing prefaces to forwards <laughs> to books, but he's got great stories about the learning much about life at the Bar Double R downtown. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was one of the men, or you like uh, uh, people who came to Chicago and heard about a country band playing in the loop, went down there, and, and, and he would tell me, along with other people, about... The, the Sundowners, that band, um, there were, I mean, in terms of, they, they were a hot band. Yeah. I mean, they Often were... Often joined they, by Joel Daly, the anchorman, <laughs> yeah. um, as a singer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, insane. Insane. Yeah. Uh, you must have, Mark, gotten, I don't know if it's possible to get wistful about things you never visited, but you must have been kind of haunted by not having been to some of these places. Uh, well, the not the places that I 
you know, if I was that happened before I was born, but the but I get wistful as to yeah. that, like, hey, I was living a couple miles up, but I didn't know that the Sundowners were playing in the loop. I could have seen them, and it's the same way with some of the blues guys who were still around. I, luckily, I did see a lot of them, uh, but you know, if I start just a couple of years earlier, which I could have, I could have seen more of them. So I think that I get more um, uh, mad at myself when I when I think about that. Talk to me for a couple minutes, and then we'll take a break, uh, about uh, Richard Harding. Uh, you describe him. and again, Ladies and gentlemen, we're telling you a lot of cool stories and a cool anecdotes from the book. The writing in this book is is uh, magnificent, and knowing that it's taken 10 years, he must have. He's told me he has piles of research material at home, and it is a very difficult thing, I will tell you, to write a book. It is an equally more difficult thing to write a book this polished and uh, beautiful. He writes, Harding was uh, social and ambitious. Customers intimidated by his stocky figure and rough edges discovered he possessed a loud, wicked laugh and a twinkle in his eye. He loved music, but his real interest was in discovering new talent. Over the next 20 years, this is after he started a place, uh, next 20 years he would give up-and-coming acts like Bob Marley, Patti Smith, Talking Heads, Bruce Springsteen, and the E Street Band their first Chicago dates. But his lifelong investment was advancing the careers of singer-songwriters, most notably Leo Kotke, Loudon Rainwright, Jimmy Buffett, Tom Waits, Arlo Guthrie, and Steve Goodman. Uh, he's another great hero in this book. Tragic hero. He is. Yeah, he he, he really is. And... Um what I really like about him, you know, there, a lot of these characters in the book, I, it's interesting, you know, and they, they, they had second chances. And he was somebody who had gotten married, lived in the suburbs, worked in construction, yeah, sure. and uh, kind of moved back after his marriage ended and uh, decided he was going to throw it all in and just do what he wanted to do. And, yeah. uh, and basically was to open a bar and, and give a songwriters a place to do their thing. And, um, and, you know, like a lot of the characters of the book, they were driven not by money, but oh, by just course. crazy, yeah. <laughs> wild passion. passion. You know, and really, th- the thing that just doesn't, the society doesn't really understand or have anything to do with, I think that he, he, um, he was in a way kind of, I don't want to say he was driven mad at all by this, but he was just, he, he, it, it's sort of, um, you know, there's a great book that uh, book title that John Fahey, the, the the guitarist, wrote called "How Bluegrass Destroyed My Life." I, I never understood that title yeah. until for many years I realized, oh yeah, I do understand that yeah. music can destroy your life. In a good way, but also a bad way. Last time I saw Richard, who ran Quiet Night, uh, driving a cab, driving a cab. Yeah, we got to take a break, get some news, and we'll come back and continue on uh, with this amazing book, Country and western back on the air back on the air with another half hour with mark garino author of country and western he has a great great website it's mark dash g-u-a-r-i-n-o dot com mark dash g-u-a-r-i-n-o that's a great website thank you and it has a bunch of you've got an event tomorrow at well and also i want to say there's a website for the book called country and midwestern.com that's so good. that's the one for the book and yeah it lists all the events that are going through there's some going through september so i'm going to be busy for the next couple of a uh, couple of months the reception uh, present company excluded has been uh has been flat out rave yes yeah yeah it really has people have been 
I mean, I think that it's if you know if if you're interested in um, sort of the the stories that you just. Um, that that have not been out there at all and shaping sort of a it just shapes a, a, a deeper picture of the development of american music the book covers a hundred years but it's also and for so, me it's it's a story of yeah i don't you know i'm not a big country music fan i'll give you that never have been obviously never will be but this book is about more than your record collection it's about the history of the city it is about the history of fascinating, uh, flawed, and sometimes fragile people. It is a history of, to my mind, American music over the last 100 years. The book is dedicated to uh, musicians in Chicago. Yeah. And, and I, what I meant, and that was really, I knew that from the beginning because um, I gained a lot of respect for um you know musicians here because and i really wanted to do them justice not just the ones who you may uh, have heard of you may have heard of or before before my time but the ones who are out there now uh, because i think that they're continuing this tradition that i think is really really important and um and it really recognizes of the i mean amazing artistry that goes on again in bars and saloons not just symphony center and so that's chicago theater that's it and just and i and i and i'm hoping to kind of direct or kind of widen the spotlight on those people who are 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 you know doing it here you've written for the you write for the washington post abc news new york times you've written as a freelancer following in your mother's footsteps uh for uh, dozens of different publications you were the bureau chief here for the christian science monitor you worked for the daily herald on staff for a long time covering pop music i what was the seed of this book when did you say to yourself i think it wasn't a matter of need want or you you were just overwhelmed with the sense that you needed you wanted to tell this story it's really kind of that you know i i like i'm 53 and a lot of people of you know the generation x generation um kind of grew up with a lot of baby boomer nostalgia which is great you know and i loved all the music of that time i watched all i read all the books i watched all the documentaries i got seeped into all that music from the 60s the 70s on and and then of course you know my time in the 80s and 90s and so i learned about the psychedelic scene in san francisco and greenwich village and the 70s punk scene i didn't live any of it and um so it was kind of those were kind of even though i appreciate all the music from that time all those times and locations um to me they still felt like museum it was like visiting a museum sometimes and i put those records on um in the 90s i had a privilege of becoming a full-time music critic around 96 and i was kind of like looking around over the years as years went on and there was an incredible scene here that is i don't think today matches it and and all these musicians were moving to chicago for their there was a label here called bloodshot records there were bands like dolly varden like robbie folks like the waco brothers like and i can go on and on and on and john langford and um and and every night of the week and i thought this is similar to what later when i was writing about the 70s when i was talking about seven nights a week same exact thing almost same exact area and so um i thought you know this is i i'm actually living in a time that is 
as exciting and as also changing. The, the, these I'm watching actually artists. I was talking about Robbie Folks watching him change record to record to record. There's a band called Wilco that came out here oh, sure. and record. Every record was different, and there was a scene kind of formulating around that. And I thought, you know, this is actually. I, I don't need to kind of rely on all those, you know, other you know scenes that I I had. Uh, read about growing up i'm actually living in the midst of it and to me that was as a writer that was very very exciting for to me and so i thought um once i wrote you, you more about it yeah how did we get here that's right and the yeah. threads moving back one uh-huh. one of the kind of beautiful things of writing this book is that i all these things kind of a they they appeared to me in that there were threads between chapters yeah people yep. one generation led to another one person kind of pass it off to another thing and so you really and so i made a point that every chapter kind of ends that's leading forward to the next chapter what's coming next and that's kind of the beautiful thing of like this this long story so it's not just a sec it's not a silent story of decade to decade to decade it's a continual thread and that's that was kind of the real payoff for me well that's one of the things that makes it special did you think it would take you 10 years (laughs) <laughs> I did not think it would take me to, and neither did the publisher. Um, <laughs> they, they never do. <laughs> they, they were like, Where's that their book? deadlines are idiotic. That's right. That's right. No, it didn't. And um, you know, I sat down and I interviewed people in their living rooms, in their bedrooms, uh, over coffee shops, in nursing homes, in convalescent centers. I went, um, of course, over the phone. And a lot of the people I interviewed for this book are no longer with us. Yeah. Um, and that was the other thing I did not expect. Um, and so um, I really did the work in terms of going to the people. And a lot of times when they opened the door, they couldn't believe there was a guy like me standing there wanting to you know, you want to talk, talk about something that happened four this? years ago. Good for you. <laughs> uh, we will take a little break and then end with uh, some discussion of the uh, uh, Holstein brothers. So please stay tuned. Welcome back. We are going to end uh, this uh, unprecedentedly long interview with Mark Garino, author of Country and Midwestern. It is a book uh, on the surface and in depth about music, but it's also about people and this specifically about this strange, sometimes difficult city in which we live. The Holstein brothers, Southsiders, uh, Fred, still living Ed and Alan, the sort of businessman brother of the Holstein <laughs> brothers, they started a nightclub for a while here. And I'll tell one quick story about Fred, and then I'll have Mark talk. I had Fred on a radio show. He had some friend had helped reissue a number, a double out, double CD mm-hmm. of Fred's music <clears throat> and Fred's singing. And I had Fred on the radio, and we put in a number of cuts and, and thing. And I, I said, now, Fred, uh, you know, how can people get this? Uh, you have a website. No, Rick, I don't, I don't got no website. I go, well, yeah, you do. It's www.fredholstein.com. Oh, no, I don't know. I don't know what that is. It was Fred you had on? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. yeah. Wow. Uh, I don't know what that is. I said, no, here, it, it's this. Oh, okay, okay, I see what you mean. I don't got a computer, so I don't really know what this stuff is, but I guess I do have a website. And I said to myself, that's a definition of a folk musician I was just if about I to, that's, ever heard one. That's folk right there. That is that folk is, right that is, there. That's the people right there. Those guys. Uh, it, Eddie is one of the most uh, 
entertaining people I know, whether in song or in person. You got you do a really nice job of talking about the Holstein brothers. You like them, I you know, and I didn't know Ed before this. And I say in the my the acknowledgments yeah. that if you are ever feeling like depressed one day, call yeah. up Ed Holstein. <laughs> and Ed has a lot of reasons probably to do depressed. Not at all. He'll talk your ear off. Life's great. He'll talk about politics. He's not stuck in the past. Great guy. Yeah, the Holsteins, three brothers who grew up on the South Shore, yeah. and yeah. Um, and were and and Ed Ed's another guy who appears in a lot of the chapters. You know, Ed would hang around. Around, um, uh, a guitar shop on 57th Street called the Fret Shop, and that's mm-hmm. where Michael Bloomfield hung around as well. Yep. That's where Bob Dylan stopped in for his month um, in, in Hyde Park, and uh, and Ed gave me some great memories of watching. You know, Michael Bloomfield as a kid would come down. It was the only guitar shop really in in town, and uh, and just kind of battle things out, have guitar battles with uh, other 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 young teenage guitarists. But um, no, he they eventually Ed became a songwriter. Fred, I call him the folk troubadour of Chicago. In the seventies, he really when people were not really that interested in traditional folk songs, yeah. he was the only guy in Chicago doing them. But he really believed that that music belonged in saloons. He was very adequate. He was very adamant about talking about these songs are are do not they shouldn't be in theaters they need to be where people the people are and and he um uh was a was a protege of pete seegers um who had really admired him and um uh and, and that's another kind of regret i had that i didn't see i wasn't around to see fred in right. his prime yeah. um but i got to know alan who also helped them run um holsteins um which was a national folk club so performers from lincoln avenue D- dave van yep. ronk would say uh that this was he wished that a place like that was in new york because there were no clubs in new york in the 70s where he could perform so he would come to chicago and play for forever and, and utah phillips and all these guys would come in and uh and play so they they were uh yeah they're they're uh i don't think you could find those three guys anywhere but chicago no question no question here's a little bit of fred holstein thanks to christopher flores the engineer singing i think this was recorded on the last night at Holstein's. It certainly sounds that way from the beginning. I'll play a few minutes of this and then we'll say goodbye to Mark and you will go out and buy his book. There are bookstores out there, but you can also get it every other way. You're going to be tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, um, I will be at the Park West where I'll be interviewed by uh, Jim DeRogatis and uh, Greg Cott and Robbie Falks will be there. He'll be part of the conversation and then Robbie will do a full band set and he's got a new record out called Blue Grassification, and so he'll do a full band set afterwards, and I'll be signing books. I believe that starts at 7 o'clock at the Park West. And there's a website for the book, as I mentioned, called countryandmidwestern.com, and has all the information on the other dates where you can hunt me down. It is a great book. I have read it twice. I'm now the only person to say <laughs> that, but I'm sure there will be more. Here, ladies and gentlemen, a little Fred Holstein. That, I do believe, is Fred Holstein singing at the closing night of Holstein's, which was mm. a great, great uh, tavern, as Mark Arino and I both use the word tavern, right. so saloon or bar or yeah. gin joint or nightclub. Uh, you can't possibly have another book on your mind, do you, Mark? I do. I am working on another book right now, actually. Can you say anything about it? Um, yeah, I can tell I mean, you. This, this must be terribly empowering for you to have finished something like this, to have digested millions of words, mil- dozens of interviews, and created something like this. Well, 
It does feel good. I, I, won't, I won't deny it. But I guess there's something in me that um, it comes from years of like writing articles, filing them, and <laughs> once they're out of once yeah. they're out of my hands, they're dead to yeah, me. Right. Um, and so, uh, and I just I'm on to the next thing. And so, but you know, you're right. I mean, I think that. Um, I, I think it, it's going to take me some time to really sure, kind of look back sure. at it. But the thing I'm really proud of is that I really, I, I, I know that no one can ever really kind of question what came from here now. And yeah. that's really the ultimate goal I had way back when is that I wanted to kind of, I wanted to, there was an injustice I felt no, in, my, you've done in, my, ju- in my you've soul. You've done justice in the yeah. last hundred years of country and folk yeah. music in Chicago. Yeah, I wanted to kind of plant the stake and the, you know, plant the flag on the ground here. And, um, you know, I've been talking to people in Nashville um, and other music-rich cities, and they want to do events about the book, which is good. Oh, I'm really happy because I want people great. outside of here to Don't really kind tomorrow of tomorrow at about 7 o'clock at Park West. Uh, you can hear Mark talk and Robbie play and sing, and uh, Greg Cott and Jim DeRogatis do their thing. What's the new book? The new book is about uh, what happened in Kenosha in August 2020. Oh, you were there. Yeah, yeah, and I was really the only journalist that was there the late that night yeah. when the violence happened. Oh. And so it's looking at how that event affected the city and uh, was a real microcosm for um, uh, what's been going on in our country the last couple of years. So it's kind of t- picking really a forensic st- study of pulling it all apart that's a good idea you're gonna have a hard time topping this book though but yeah. keep re- <laughs> it's not as keep fun not as much Mark, fun. it's been a it's a it's a great pleasure to know you and to have known you for for a while yeah well and, uh, this book exceeded all of my eyes and my expectations for this it's exceeded them all thank you you can all read about that too in next sunday's chicago tribune say hi to your girl i certainly will all right pal